0: Hello and welcome back, Fortune Seekers. Today on the official Mega Moth Studios podcast, we're going to be covering part two of the invention of X Seekers of Fortune. In this episode, we're going to be covering our development of heroic feats, as well as deciding on the flavor of the game. And we're going to uh, share the story of how we brought all of that back to Patrick, the original playtesters. So come along for the journey. Hello again. And this week, as with every week, I'm joined with Daniel Ayoub, the co creator of X Seekers of Fortune and my permanent co host. How are you doing today, Pat? Uh, how, are you, how are you doing today, Danny?
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty good, Joel. How are you doing?
0: I'm doing okay. I, I uh, did a lot of laundry earlier, so I am actually kind of a little on the beat side. I uh, I go to a laundromat that I guess does not have a working air conditioning unit. So I Oof. was basically sweating through the clean clothes as I was cleaning the clothes. Oh my uh, God. Yeah, I know. And my girlfriend's probably not going to be too happy because I'm, sh- I'm sure... Uh, You're sweating I... <laughs> all over her
1: clothes? or like ex-
0: <laughs> <what>? <laughs> Maybe a little. Hopefully she doesn't notice. Hopefully it's I'm, dry by now. I'm really feeling my eyebrows right now. I mean,
1: I'm I'm, I'm, I'm excited for you to see the video because I think you'll be feeling my eyebrows too
0: oh great yeah no I think we got to have a lot of eyebrow action here you know get, get one up the other up you know I'm, I'm a real lefty when it comes to my eyebrow I can really like raise that left one but the right one it just doesn't feel the same
1: yeah I don't know <laughs> if I can do much with my eyebrows I don't I'm trying but it's uh, it doesn't have like the uh, the thing the rock can do you know yeah so,
0: you know, whatever. stuff like this I can't. <laughs> yeah
1: I mean presumably I don't know
0: all right, Danny. So today we're going to be discussing, uh, our, or we're basically going to be recounting the story of the creation of X Secrets of Fortune, but we're going to be picking it up from where we left off last time to remind the audience, uh, everybody at home, we got up to the point where we had designed a very early working prototype of the game in Tabletopia. And uh, after we had run that a few times through the paces and thought and understood how the game worked, between the two of us, we took that to two playtesters, one of them being my brother, Nathan, and another one being our longtime friend, uh, Patrick. And uh, the feedback they gave us was, you know, I would say gave us inspiration to design the game further, to keep going with our game design, because essentially it was like, if I remember correctly, and you know, you can fill this in, their feedback was, okay, that felt like a game, but it also felt like a game that I didn't have so much agency in which, you know, we took very seriously because, you know, agency in video game, or not video game, but agency in gaming to us is what makes a game fun.
1: Yeah, it's absolutely imperative that players' actions matter. I mean, why are we playing games? I mean, if, if you know, we're just going through the motions and everything is deterministic, I mean, we might do that once or twice, but really it's it's like watching a show, right? Once we've mm-hmm. seen what it has to offer, that's it. We're done with it. So... Yeah, no, absolutely. Agency is everything.
0: And not every show can be Mad Men. You're not just going to keep watching it over and over again.
1: Well, agency and
0: fun is everything. I don't don't
1: know. You could have agency without fun. I don't know if people want to play that.
0: That's true. You do need to balance out the two. We can talk more about that for sure in our coming episodes because there's there's probably a big uh, discussion, debate to have about that topic. But an even bigger discussion and debate to have is the question of the week. Ooh, yeah. question so, of the week. <laughs> yes, sir, we, we, gotta, <laughs> we gotta have some icebreakers to get everything started. So Break that I ice. thought this one, yes, sir. And I thought this would be a great one with the new Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny coming out. And it's no secret that Indiana Jones and that franchise has been a big inspiration on our game. And we're probably gonna end up talking about that in, when we discuss the flavor of the game and how we came to it. But I thought I would ask you, Danny. To you, what is the best Indiana Jones movie?
1: Oh, okay, that's a that's a good one. Uh, so, uh, do I get some some liberties with answering this? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, I originally, uh, I think, when I pitched the question to you originally, I said besides Raiders of the Lost Ark, because I am a. Uh, big believer that that's personally my favorite, but you said you, you wouldn't need that stipulation no, I, no. Uh, to have a unique answer. So
1: on the whole, and again, I, you know, this is not a commentary from like a, a cinephile standpoint. This is just from like my own personal preference standpoint, which I think counts for something. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a big, um, last crusade fan. I really like you know, the whole Grail concept. I like the father son dynamic. I like, uh, you know, the the trials and tribulations at the end of it. I mean, just everything about The Last Crusade really just kind of strikes right for me. But I will say yes. that I think that mm-hmm. the opening sequence to Temple of Doom is, is probably the best opening sequences, uh, opening sequence of, of any indie movie thus far. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting to be... Uh, aroused uh, by the Dial of Destiny. I probably could have chose a better word there, but, you know, I think... There...
0: <laughs> Feel free to go back and choose a better word. No, we'll, we'll
1: let that one go. That's
0: fine. I think, okay, I think people, okay.
1: people can, uh, you know...
0: I know there's a lot of hype about the beginning of the Dial of Destiny. If I, I hope this isn't a spoiler if, in case you're watching this video before it comes out. I believe they've already uh, revealed that all of the uh, the cold open of the film is going to be the, de- the de-aged Harrison Ford for like a 15 minute cold open. Uh, maybe even so similar to uh, Last Crusade where it starts with him as a younger man and then we'll fast forward to him as a much older man. Um, but I'm actually, uh, I have no, you know, almost no argument against your answer because I am a Last Crusade fan as well. Um, I... Th- uh, I granted it was. It's definitely a nostalgia thing for me. I haven't watched the movie in quite a few years. In fact, I mean to soon because, uh, I, you know, um, I'm really hyped about the new movie and the the game has been has gotten my blood boiling for Indiana Jones and his adventures. But The Last Crusade was, it was just one of those things. It was one of those VHSs that I owned when I was like five, six, seven. I wore that thing out, I'm sure. as It was probably the movie as a kid that I could quote the most. Though I do recall when I saw I saw Raiders, like really saw Raiders, you know, for the first time, like as a preteen. And I I did the same thing, like, you know, then. It's like, you know, when I was like, you know. 11 or so i saw raiders for the first time and i probably saw it 50 times within the month after i saw it you know i mean every
1: single one of them is great they all have their different things Mm -hmm. that that i love about it like temple you know the opening short round is amazing uh that scene where they're eating Mm. monkey brains Mm -hmm. is amazing the rope bridge is iconic (laughs) with the with the crocodiles um but if i can i'd like to share one of my favorite indiana jones memories um sure so um, the producer of this show, uh, William uh, and I, uh, had an opportunity to go see a triple feature uh, at the Paramount Theater in Austin and see Raiders, Temple of Doom, and Last Crusade back to back to back, and that it was one of the best cinema experiences of my life. Uh, and wow. yeah, Will and I definitely share a, a, a deep uh, passion for Indiana Jones. And uh, that's actually one of the most exciting things about our uh, July 1st event in Norman, Oklahoma. The uh, pregame for that is going to be going to see Dial of Destiny uh, opening night, the day before we're there with William in uh,
0: Oklahoma. So I'm, I'm super stoked for that, yeah. yeah. That is, that, yes, I am very excited. I didn't get to go to that Paramount triple feature with the two of you, and, but I'm really excited that we're all gonna be going to see the new movie together Uh, with William, his family, the two of us. I think your brother's going to be there too. Yep,
1: Luke will be there. Luke will be there.
0: Uh, So yeah, it's going to be an exciting time, I think. Excellent. Well, I think we can both agree, uh, The Last Crusade, probably the best Indiana Jones film. I think we can both agree on that. And I'll say Temple of Doom, definitely the best opening sequence to a movie, uh, or one of the great opening sequences to a movie. Just so much energy, so much uh, drive all the way up until they get on that plane. Well... Since we were talking about the you know the Indiana Jones and you know the flavor that we were inspired by, we should probably jump into uh, today's topic. And we're going to be, uh, as I said earlier, we're going to be covering the flavor of the game uh, of X Seekers of Fortune. It moving from Lost Arts, where it was a um, where it was a game about, I guess, uh, kind of wizards or you know, folks finding magical spells which we didn't really have any art for. We just had that broad theme. Uh, and when I designed cards, I, I even tried to shy away from that theme by naming them things like Silence the Ego and and, and was it like Embrace the Shadow Self? You had or, a or embrace your big shadow.
1: psychological influence, I think, when you were uh, naming your cards. I could tell in that first batch of cards you were kind of trying to do something mm-hmm. more Jungian.
0: Yeah, I was definitely on a Jungian kick. I mean, as we all should be, everybody should go through a Jungian phase for sure we had, you had pitched a game that was about people finding old spells and casting them, and, which was really exciting, but I think uh, I was pushing back fairly early on. A, I didn't want, I, I, I might have gone through the looking glass on this, but at the time, I wanted to design the game's mechanics first and then have a theme sort of coded over them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, when I first started Conceptualizing the game, you know, fantasy is to your point like just a very standard jumping off point for games like this. Um, And in my original conception, I really wanted the game to feel like early magic, like 1993, 1994 magic, where, you know, one of the things that drew me in when I was a kid looking at cards for the first time. I mean, I can remember looking in a case at a, a game store and seeing a Black Lotus for $99 and just wanting to buy it for some reason. And uh, I wish I had, but mom.
0: Yes, we, we all did know.
1: So you know, whatever. Um, no, but to me, those early days, when you held a magic card, it was almost like you were holding that artifact or like you felt like this actually could produce the spell on the card. And um, the game just felt really like mythical. Like now to me, for better or for worse, I'm not saying it's bad. You know, it it feels like it's, you know, a fantasy novel or, you know, it it feels like fantasy pop culture to me now. But at a time, it felt like real magic, like actual magical Mm -hmm. items. So I wanted something that was evocative of that. Um, And I really liked the idea of of lost civilizations and this idea that they were trying to recover, you know, magical knowledge from the past. And I think that Mm -hmm. plays into what we eventually got to on some level. Um, But, but, but you know, the intermediate steps, you know, when you first raised the point of, hey, like, do we really wanna do another fantasy magic game? Can we do better? Um, you know, I, I, I took took notice. I think that that, you know, that rang true. So do you
0: remember any of the things that you pitched at that time as, as potential alternate flavors? The big one I remember being very, like feeling very strongly about to the point where I think we're still gonna make this game with this theme, uh, uh, maybe modifying the match engine is uh I wanted it to be like a game a game about you know characters getting into the and trying to each other with the uh I guess the uh what what are now adventures I was imagining those as the that you would have to perform in order to you know pr- to uh produce a big and, uh and that sort of thing I was just imagining that with a maybe an anime chibi kind of art style I think you wanted something you know like you said you wanted Magic, circa 1993, and this—that was a little more cartoonish and a little more, I don't know, campy, maybe we could say, than what you were looking for. So I, I realized at a certain point. I think I made—I made the negotiations like, okay, Danny, obviously you don't want to go with the <laughs> yet, but we will make the <laughs> game later, and that's like that allowed me to like file it away. And I would highly recommend if you run into an impasse with your creative partners, especially if you're—if you tend to fire on all cylinders with them. Don't let something, like, don't die on hills like that. You know, just just be like, this is a good idea. We can get to it eventually. I
1: think that's a great point, actually. You know, and, and, I, and I just want to jump in here because I do think that this is actually one of the, the core dynamics of our creative relationship that has made it so productive um, and successful over the years, which is we are very, very good about when one person raises an objection, not trying to bull the other person over. Like, if we think it's really important and we don't feel like they're fully connecting the dots, we might spend a little bit of time saying, hey, hold on, let me let me make sure I have a clean pitch on this. But once, you know, it's clear that we're both on the same page about what the idea entails, you know, if it doesn't work for both parties, we very rarely will, will you know, attempt to die on that hill, as you said. We are, you know, very, very, we're, you know, we're creative types and we believe that there is, uh, you know, always another way. And, and, and probably another way that we'll both like. So anyway, sorry to cut you off, but I, I do think that that's a really important dynamic to why we've been successful creatively
0: over the years. And I, I think we've gotten better about it as we've gotten older too. I think it's it's something that comes with maturity and just realizing, oh, I'm going to have, if you're a creative person, you're going to have just ideas out of the wazoo and you're not even going to get to all of them. So no, no reason to, you know, uh, kill a project you know, because you're not getting that one good idea, th- you know, through it's it's just not resonating with you know your partner or the other people you're working with. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: you know one of the early pitches. I think you probably pitched the Indiana Jones Adventure World, and it, it immediately resonated with me as being a, a viable alternative. I mean, maybe it's because again, I'm a I'm a sucker for Indie, but, uh, <laughs> but know
0: know your audience. Yeah, know folks. your audience.
1: Uh, But no, like, again, like one of the things that really tickled me about the original concept of Lost Arts was this idea that something had been lost that was important. That was more advanced in some way than what uh, was known to exist in the modern world and people were seeking it. And I think you can see a very clear line between that, you know, core idea of that fantasy game and, you know, Seekers of Fortune. I mean, this game is still all about seeking. And as you will see in subsequent sets. Um, you know, regardless of what the setting is, because not every, every, um, expansion of, of X Seekers of Fortune will be set in this, this world, but what will be common throughout them all is it will be people seeking something, uh, for fortune, for fame, something esoteric, something, um, legendary, something interesting. And, um, and so you can see where that through line gets us from lost arts to, what is now X Seekers of Fortune, but at that time was uh, called Adventure X. And that's a story for another day, but.
0: <laughs> I, okay, so some of the things that changed, uh, was some of the things that changed when we decided that the theme was gonna be this Indiana Jones adventure world where, and, and I say Indiana Jones, but uh, we early on I put in also The Mummy, like with Brendan Fraser and Rachel Weisz was like, that was a huge influence for me. In fact, I, I wanted the set, I, I, initially I wanted the set to be all Egyptian themed.
1: At some point, I think we started to view the game as a vehicle to um, create cinematic moments, to um, create an opportunity for players to live through a narrative of a certain genre. And and that genre in this game is action adventure in all of its manifestations. And so the adventure is very obvious, right? But um, the action, where does the action come from? And all the action comes from, you know, um, well, I don't want to say all of it, but a good, a good uh, amount of it, and certainly the unique genre to- trope type action comes from this uh, third deck, which was the action X deck because there's a variety of things in it, and all of them, you know, give some some level of action to the game.
0: I think the idea was like, what gets what gets you through an adventure? You know, what 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 do you follow? And early, like, I, I, one of us came up with the idea of you follow leads. You know, you're following, we thought also clues, but clues felt a little too specific. We wanted something broader and leads. You know, I I got a lead for that hot story. You know, that's something a journalist would say. It's something that, you know, Indiana Jones would say. It's something that, uh, you know, a lot of different kinds of adventurers would follow leads. And we were looking for something that, I think our litmus test, because we do want to set this in different worlds, uh, this this the same game mechanics but different worlds. Our litmus test was always like, would it make sense in a fantasy setting, and would it make sense in a science fiction setting?
1: Exactly, and and that it holds true as we move to the second part of our conversation later about naming the heroic feats. Um, you know, things have to feel like they can be set in versatile worlds. You know, thus the reason we moved away from from quests. Um, and one of the other things I remember is that at some point, you know, we were talking about, was it the directions? You know, is it North, South, East and West? And we went through lots and lots of different things and we had a really deep conversation about, you know, what it is that really propels you on an adventure. And what we ended up with was is the leads and, and kind of as you alluded to, um, you know, we wanted to, to, to talk about motivation and, 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 and inspiration. You know, what is it that, you know, lead you on on a journey. And it's not just one thing. There are a variety of things that that lead you. You know, some people are are motivated by a grand vision. Some people are motivated by, you know, what they read. Other people are motivated by, you know, what they find in 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 in, you know deep holes in the ground. And other people, you know, just have this sense of of mythology that they believe, you know, there's truth in. And, you know, as we had this conversation about all the different ways that that people find themselves being oriented in life uh, on adventure, we settled on the four leads, which are, I told you, care to
0: <laughs> Yes, so uh, the four leads that we settled on, you, you pretty much uh, hit them all, but let's just lay them out cleanly for the folks at home. We have vision, glyph, ruin, and myth. Now, those four, like, I'll do my best to kind of like, you know, sell them with maybe a moment from uh, Indiana Jones um, or another franchise. So let's, it's, let's start with Ruin because that's the one that is like the most Indiana Jones, like with Ruin, we imagine being like uh, uncovering, you know, uh, like, you know, uncovering a dig site um, and, you know, finding the, the, what was left behind? I think I often think of uh, the Colosseum in Rome or the ashes of Pompeii, you know, um, things like that, or the uh, pyramids themselves. In some ways, are you know ruins that were left behind. Um, so, I guess hmm, that would be. What 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 would you? Is there a, a moment from Indiana Jones, uh, any of the movies that? you think of as using ruins to follow
1: yeah i mean i think the staff of raw is a good example i think um you know any time when he's studying uh you know hieroglyphics uh you know even though that kind of starts to go into glyph uh, you know and, and that's something that you'll find with with all of these is you know very rarely is any any one following one lead and and that's part of the reason why we need to use all the leads during the course of the game, right? Like, you know, there are people who are, you know, much more motivated and inspired by one over the other, but uh, generally speaking, you know, we all dabble in all of them.
0: Yeah, and that, I guess I would take us to Glyph because I I have an example that could be interpreted as Glyph or Ruin, but uh, so Glyph, I, I consider Glyph to be the recorded record that's like looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls um, you know, or you know, or finding the Dead Sea Scrolls, I should say, or you know, uh, translating the Rosetta Stone, and one that I always point to in Indiana Jones. I guess they kind of go to get, they flow together. Maybe this in sequence in it's itself could illustrate following all the leads to get to your uh, destination. In The Last Crusade, Indiana Jones follows, uh, uh, goes to a, a library, right, and uh, in at the library he finds. What is it? Um, He follows the numbers of like the aisles to find the X that marks the spot. So that I I was always thinking of that as being him using uh, a glyph, but that actually might be more like him using the ruins left behind.
1: Do you think that we can consider that product placement?
0: I hope so. You know, uh, George Lucas, get at us. Well, I guess not. Kathleen Wait, whoa, whoa,
1: whoa, whoa, Hold on. What does that entail? Yeah. If we're saying it's product placement, do they then just send us like a bill? Like, I'm not sure I want an invoice from those <laughs> like,
0: I mean... Never trust, mind. Trust me. It's a like, Roman trust.
1: numeral completely unrelated to X seekers of fortune. <laughs> yeah.
0: Exactly. It's 10. 10 marks the spot. Uh, but then he goes down into the catacombs, you know, a very, very scary, uh, you know, with all the rats. And he finds the the other half of the shield left behind by the knight templar in his in his tomb and he uh he what is it uses his pencil to to get the the script you know the scribe on it you know to complete the the half that he had so he could read the entire message that would be ki- that would be a glyph following a glyph lead to complete an adventure
1: yeah absolutely and then um, what about vision so vision um... Is that something that you think that we can find an example for in Indiana Jones or do we need to jump to another franchise?
0: What, what, what? That's a good question. let us let's, let's walk down this path but let's first set up what vision for us means and for us vision is literally you know having a vision you know um, having a dream that is prophetic or maybe going on a vision quest and uh, like finding your way through a vision quest. Uh, we it's probably the most retro futuristic, uh, one, it's like the industrialist would be a, a, vision character. Uh, you know, I think we often say Tony Stark is our go-to character for explaining what vision is because he has vision, you know, he has a vision of making the Iron Man suit and he dedicates himself to doing it. Um, but Indiana Jones being so down to earth, he doesn't really do much in the way of, uh, you know, that sort of like, you know, spiritualizing, if you will. But, I mean, another character kind of follows a vision in uh, the Indiana Jones movie we haven't referred to. The, you know, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull.
1: What movie is this?
0: Uh, Indiana Jones and the Crystal Skull? I don't know that one. Okay, well... Uh... Uh, uh, well, let me tell you. I'll, I'll I'll tell you about it sometime in the future. But basically, yeah, it's okay. I'm yeah. Fine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, but Indy, Indy, maybe not Indy himself, but one of his companions kind of follows a vision, uh, has like a vision quest of sorts that he's following through, in that movie. Um, and then that leads us to our final one. I think the the one that has the most weight and uh, to it myth. And this, for us, is like, literally, it's like, if glyph is following the written record, myth is following the oral tradition. The stories that are passed down, that have been passed down uh, for for generations that nobody knows the beginning of, and they don't know how they've changed, you know. Um, You know, we say Homer wrote the Odyssey, but in all honesty, it was a story passed down.
1: Okay.
0: Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It was a story passed down, and... um, you know, there's plenty of other examples. I mean, we all have the, the tall tales of America are myths. Um, the, I have the, a great
1: example of, oh, of myth from Indiana Jones, actually, if I can Oh, yeah, please do. I, I, you know, I think of that, that, that uh, climactic moment where, you know, Indy's standing in front of the, the ghost of the night who's guarding, you know, the, the vast array of goblets, and any one of them could be the grail. And, uh, you know, uh, the guy uh, who's the the villain in the the movie obviously goes for, you know, the most, you know, opulent one and drinks to his death. Um, But Indy is trying to figure out which one it is because he's got to he's got to solve it. His dad's out there. He's dying. It's 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 the only way to save him. And he's he's telling himself, like asking himself, okay like, you know, what do I know about 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 Christ? And. You know, he's a carpenter and he's thinking about the story and it helps him hone in on the most humble of goblets, which he drinks from, and it turns out to be the life-giving goblet, the grail. Um, And so that's an example in my mind of how someone might use myth to guide them towards, you know, that, that ultimate fortune they seek.
0: Yes, exactly. And, you know, so in one movie we have a character following ruins left behind to get glyphs to lead him on his adventure uh, and that he needs to utilize myth, you know, the power of myth and the stories that have been told to him by his father and by his culture in order to make the right decision. Um, The only thing we're missing from that movie specifically, and if we were to go back and watch the movie, which I should do soon, I bet you I could pull a vision moment from it. But From Last Crusade? From Last Crusade. Uh, but There is something
1: to, I, you know, I, you kind of used it for Glyph before, but I mean, it's the observant, the, the realizing that that X is there, that 10 is there the whole time. I mean, that there's a sense of vision there,
0: you know. All right. Yeah, Danny, that's a really great point about uh, how vision did come into play in uh, The Last Crusade. And that gives us one movie that demonstrates all the leads and how they would be used by an adventurer to, uh, you know, complete his adventure. So with that, why don't we transition into the second part of this episode? We're going to talk about heroic feats and how we developed those to give the players much more agency. Do you remember how it started?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the confirmation that the heroic feats were necessary came from that first play test. We knew coming out of that game that, you know, the most salient piece of feedback we got is there's a lack of player agency and we have to solve for it. Prior to going into that playtest, I had already started thinking about what would become the first couple of um, heroic feats. And at that time, in my mind, and for a long time, they were just called special player actions. Um, the idea would be that these are, these are player actions that are always available to you that you can access through discarding leads. Um, and the ones we knew, I knew that I wanted to see in the game was um, Thort, which was a way for you to counteract your opponent's feats because it felt like those can't go unanswered. We, we had designed some very, very powerful, some might say broken um, feats at that time. And, 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 you know, they can't go unchecked. And likewise, same with the relics. And so we, you know, I had said, okay, we need a way to counter things and we need a way to destroy things that are in play. And so we, we had come up with Thort, uh, and, and then um, we had two actual different special player actions, for one for getting rid of Relics, because at that time, Sites did not exist. Um, and that was called Lay Waste. And then there was a separate one that did almost the same thing uh, for Adventures, and that was called uh, Send Astray or Set Astray, something like that. Um, and eventually we got got smart about it and realized that those should just be the same thing. And at some point it became Sabotage. Um, but yeah, Thord and Sabotage, you know, proto-Sabotage were the, the, the ones that I kind of had been thinking about going into that play test. So then, Joel, do you remember from there how the, what the next one was? Because mm-hmm. there was one you were thinking about,
0: if I remember Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So, um just to expand on what you were saying, just to put a point onto one of the things you were saying there, yes. Uh, sometimes you have to take how should I how should I say this? Sometimes you have to you know go through the long hard process of doing it the complicated way to refine it to elegancy. So like you know it, we did need to go through that process where. Uh, was it uh, sabotage? Was two different things because there was a lot of answers in like the rules to answer for us to figure out before we can make one heroic feat that did two things. Um, and I'm sure we'll get more into that when we get into the nitty gritty of game design. But what I was uh, so what I was thinking about at the time, and you know, uh, you want games to be close. You want there it to feel like both players have a chance. You it, when a, if a game. Has too many, uh, play sessions where it's a runaway success for one of the players. I think that's that's bad. You need to have a way, of ha- letting the person who's falling behind catch up. So I was devising like from my experiences, it was it was really hard to reload on um, leads, and uh, when you you paid for them, if you if you paid to thwart somebody's uh action X card or their feet. You were behind, and it uh, you know in leads and it was very hard to catch up. So I devised uh, the feat that came to be known as "dig within," um, that you could only use when you were behind in the game. At least back then. Now it's when you're behind or tied. Uh, but it was you could scrap or d- you'd get rid of one of your maps, basically sacrifice one of your maps uh, or adventures, as they're called, and draw two more leads and it really changed the flavor, the flow of the game because, you know, after like, if you do that two turns in a row, you're reloaded.
1: It makes all the difference in the world when your opponent has to be weary of what you might do to them, Mm -hmm. on you know, and and how you might interact with them. And it's very difficult to design a game um, that is supposed to be competitive without feeling like there's a way to really interact with your opponent. And Sabotage and and Thort did that. Mm -hmm. And one of the things about the way the game is designed is you can do whatever you want on your turn, but you will run out of resources. And in the early game, it was way too easy to just get, you know, completely exhausted on resources, and then it was just slow reloading. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, what... Originally, we called the catch up mechanic, and then eventually became dig within, was so important to, to that, um, you know, um, fixing that element of the game. And then the latter three sort of each came in on their own to solve different problems.
0: I would say that, sorry, it does, you know, step on you there a little bit, but I would say that the reason each and every one of these was developed was because we were running into a problem in the game. That was taking away our fun, or making us feel like we were we were we had a lack of options. So they these less those first three came quick, fast and furious. They we had them within like you know a few days of opening up this design space. These other three took us you know hours of play testing to identify these problems and slowly develop a way to address them. So why don't we delve dig into those now?
1: So yeah, absolutely. So let's dig in. So. Um... There were three. So what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna walk us through what they were uh, and and what was the problem we were trying to solve and what the solution was. So the first one was Meditate. And what Meditate does is it allows you to discard an Action X card from your hand um, in order to look at the top three leads of the lead deck, choose one, and then bury the other two. Um, So it gives you some card selection. The whole reason why Meditate is there is because there were some cards that were great, um, you know, at the beginning, in the middle of the game. But, you know, depending on when you drew them, if you drew them too late, they were just stone cold worthless. And that's a terrible feeling. You know, you're going into the late game and you draw a card off the top of the deck and it does nothing for you and you can't do anything with it. You know, it, it just was a feel bad, it felt like it was a wasted resource. And so we developed meditate in order to to solve for that. Um, and, and make sure that there was always a, a floor that was reasonable, no matter when you drew any specific action X. And it freed us up to not be so worried about making sure that cards were good at good at every point of the game. So the next one, um, do you wanna tell um, a little bit about Infiltrate?
0: Yeah, I think Infiltrate was like one that was long, a long development process because we knew, I think right out of the gate, when we were developing the special player actions, we wanted there to be a way that you could gain information on what your opponent has in their hands to, to kind of you know, see if you had the all clear to you know, uh, play your card because you know they don't have a thord in hand. The thing about this one, we often talk about having to turn the dials of cost and an effect. Um, so what we knew was we wanted you to be, we wanted you to have a way of interacting with your opponent's hand. What we didn't know is how much did that cost you, and what should you get in return? Was it worth a lead just to see your opponent's hand? Was it worth uh, a lead to see your opponent's hand and and you know uh, make him discard a lead? we played with some of these and when it was when it was just to see the hand nobody was using it when it was to uh one lead to see their hand and get them to discard a lead it was abused so uh so eventually we got to the point where and i think these two things sort of went together in in the final stages of really shaping it into place we decided well no i think the first thing that happened was we were like we don't want this to be abused as much as it is so infiltrate now is like dig within it sits behind the stipulation that you have to be behind in the game uh, and later updated to tied or behind in the game but that still was a little too good i i discard one lead for you to discard one lead it, it's it's how should i say it's not it, it, it there's no negative tempo to it I draw one lead every turn and if I want to use that lead to make you discard a lead, then you discard the lead that you drew that like last turn and we essentially both stay what is the turn? you know we, we we stay where we are. It we realize that it was just like being stuck in the mud if one person just wanted to do that. So we, you
1: usually have a stray lead around that you're willing to throw away to get mm-hmm. cuz it's not it's not a one for one. It seems like well, one for one like that's pretty fair, but it's like the one I want least for the one you want probably the most yes because i can because that's the other reason why and i just want to add this here the you know one of the big things that i've been obsessed with since the beginning of the game was i wanted people to have the ability to see what you were working with to have a better idea of what you should target in terms of getting rid of their adventures right Mm -hmm. um and so anyway that that that's where the balance issue really presented itself but go ahead Joel. sorry
0: no, no, that, that was a really good point, uh, and it, that just led us to figure that it needed to cost two leads. It needed to have a negative tempo for the person doing it, because for the two leads of your choice, you're getting to see your opponents, your rivals, whole hand, and choosing the best lead to take out of it. You could strip them, you could take them off of a thwart. You could take them off of a breakthrough, especially near the end of the game, when that might be the thing that's going to win the game for them. You can see if they're about to the venture they're about to complete. You can just take away that one lead that they need. Uh, you know, it's like they they have they have so many ruins, but only one myth, and they need that myth to complete the like adventure in front of them. Just take that myth away from them. You know, it just sets them back on tempo so strategically. And it's still not. I would say you go games. I, you could go into a, a couple games without anybody infiltrating, and I don't think that's a bad thing. I think it's it, it really takes a certain play position to get into for infiltrate to go online and be a a good strategy and a you know a good ability to use but when you need it it's a it's a game changer it changes the entire tempo of the game
1: yeah so, I mean, I, you want to infiltrate more than you do it's just that i mean finding that window where you have two extraneous leads that you're willing to give up um you know i mean that's one of what i think makes the game great is like you're constantly faced with these resource management decisions and yeah, you might want to know what's in their hand, but do you really have two leads that you can give up for that?
0: Yeah. And you could end up really stepping in it. If you, if those two leads that you gave up might've completed the next quest that you are the next adventure that you revealed on the beginning of your next turn. So it, it really is, there's this term in fighting video games called footsies where you have to kind of like try to get as you, you, try to walk closer to your opponent to bait them into walking closer to you. So they enter your attack range first. And I do feel like in this game, when it's being played at a really high level, you almost have that sort of push and pull. It's like, do I, do I step closer to my opponent and potentially open myself up to get hit or to, you know, fall behind or, you know, or is this the right move while I find the opening and really set them back? So, I, I just really enjoy how that, that uh, particular uh, feat plays. And then I do believe we do have one more. And that is like, yeah, and that is the, I would say this feat uh, changed the game. Um, there was this concept, Danny, that you brought up early on, and we were having a little bit of dilemma with it, uh, after, Once we got into this, you know, once we had our prototype set up and we were playtesting with, with different people, one thing that you constantly brought up was we need the game to be sticky. We need people to feel like they want to come back to play the game. They, they, we need them to feel motivated to play the game on their own, not just that they are, uh, you know, humoring us by playing the game that we created. And I would say after a particularly, you know, insightful playtest with your brother and his girlfriend... Um, that we observed, their big thing coming out of it was we want to play more Action X cards. And we knew that Action X cards were basically the juice of the game. Like the game is really solid. If it was just use leads to complete adventures, it would would be be a really simple, but still probably playable game, especially for like mass market or families or young kids. But we knew the Action X cards were the cards that really brought it to the next level, feeling like something exciting and different and we we knew that we wanted to get people more access to them so we did make a change and two changes at once which we rarely do we tried to try to we tried to change only one thing at a time but we decided okay at the beginning of the game you're going to get a action x card you just get one off the top in your opening hand and that definitely you know got people a little more intrigued about the game but then we created the special player action or the heroic feat called breakthrough and what Breakthrough says is you can discard three matching leads in order to draw one Action X card. And that basically gave the players their own agency, their own ability to shape their hand. If they wanted to, they could shape their hand or spend excess leads if they're flooded to draw those really coveted and really interesting and game-changing, some might even say game-warping Action X cards.
1: Absolutely. And and, and there are a couple of factors here with, with breakthrough that I think are important. And and one of them is there are games where you might play that you'll never break through. Like you may never even attempt to break through. But you know, there are gonna be games where, you know, maybe it's not advisable to break through, but a player likes drawing action X cards. That's what's fun for them in the game. And having the ability to play the game towards more action X cards, even if that's a suboptimal strategy you know, that's cool. You know, we want people to be able to have fun the way they want to have fun. And so giving them a tool to constantly access that deck, even at their own detriment, um, you know, was something that we were, were highly motivated to do. Um, but there was one other element of breakthrough that I think was important to the game. And this was something that you raised early on and had kind of been a, a, a sort of lingering problem that we wanted to solve with for the game. We didn't feel like it was something that had to be solved. And that was, could we devise a organic alternate win con that uh, was not warping to the game um, and uh, was not going to take precedence over the primary win con but was still attainable somewhere around 10% of the time. And Breakthrough solved that for us. We didn't get there right all at once. It took a little tinkering. But eventually, we found a way to make Breakthrough an alternate win condition. Do you want to explain how that works?
0: Yes. So, uh, with Breakthrough, in the text, uh, when you read it in the Quick Start Guide or wherever you find it, it says that you get to draw, you discard three matching leads and you draw an Action X card. And then, if you have seven Action X cards between your Action Zone and your Archive Zone, and remember, feats, when you use a feat, it goes to the archive zone. When somebody sabotages your site, it goes to the archive zone. So you're keeping, you're keeping those in your archive zone to keep tally of your Action X cards that you've played that game. And if you have seven, you win the game. But it does it does have one stipulation that was very important for us not warping the game completely to turning it into the breakthrough game, which was you do have to be in the final quest. Um, I'm not sure if we have explained the final quest in this podcast, but essentially, you would have had to have completed four adventures, and then, once you've completed four adventures, then you can use that breakthrough victory. We can spend an entire, another episode of this show going over even more details about the heroic feats and why we made the decisions we made, the costs and everything like that, but I think the final aspect of the heroic feats that b- both gave them their name and turned the game into truly being as sticky as it is, is that it's right there in the name. They are feats. Thort works on all of them. If you want to, if your opponent tries to dig within and you don't want them having to, those two extra leads, you could thwart them if you so choose. You don't want them getting that, uh, the breakthrough victory does not work if somebody thwarts it. So that I think turned the game into being that very competitive, uh, I. I kind of describe it as being much more similar to boxing and chess than other games that i've played and i think it's because you always have that thort option if you can keep it up you can really sucker punch your opponent even when they're trying to do one of these basic you know catch-up mechanics or alternate wind conditions yeah i i agree 100 percent. to kind of round this out uh somewhere in that process not necessarily after figuring out everything we laid out but we did after we got the theme together and we started developing the heroic feats, we brought it back to Patrick. Nathan, I think we had
1: five of six when we brought it back to Patrick. Breakthrough hadn't come out yet, but
0: Breakthrough hadn't come out, and maybe Infiltrate was a little different. Uh, but we did bring it back to Patrick, and this now uh, we'll we'll talk more about this side of the of uh, the process next week. Uh, but he was seeing the cards now with artwork with a uh, specific frames, specific fonts, all the names were unique. This went from being black and white cards, you know, white cards with black text and black clip art to being like full colored cards in his hands. And do you remember what how Patrick felt the first time we came back to the game and showed him how far had to come?
1: I think that he certainly was, you know, a little impressed by... The changes to the game but i mean i think we'll have to ask him in a future episode i'd love to have him on to kind of just talk about it from his perspective as an outsider kind of seeing it um and then you know there are certainly some major contributions that patrick made to the development of the game that i think i'd love to talk to him about Yeah. Um, more than once he broke the game. So Yeah,
0: I was going to tease that actually, that in, in next <laughs> week's episode, we are going to continue this story because we do still have some major aspects of this journey to cover. Next week, we are going to be getting into the business of making the game, uh, you know, uh, using, art, uh, using mid-journey to create art assets, my own journey learning to be a better designer and laying out the cards. But I think we'll also have to tell the story about the two times Patrick found game breaking bugs in our design that we are so happy he did. Otherwise we would be shipping a much worse game. So that's gonna be part three of this uh, series uh, that we'll cover next week. But why don't we go ahead and start wrapping up the show. Now, Danny, you'd you'd like to finish this off. You'd like to give us a little dessert here at the end of the show. Why don't yeah, you go absolutely. ahead and, why don't you go ahead and hit me with it because I am not ready at all <laughs> well you know
1: one of my favorite pastimes for the last 20 years is asking you questions um, and playing games mm-hmm. um, often with you yeah and so I've devised a little game for us to play and uh, I have uh, numbers 1 through 15 okay each of them uh, have a question associated with them and some of them are questions that Oliver, my son, has come up with, and some of them are questions that I've come up with. And uh, let's have you pick a few numbers and I'll ask the questions uh, and let's see how you do. I'm gonna give you, hmm, let's do three. Three That's, questions seems like a good number.
0: Yeah, it seems like a good number to me too. It's a, I think if you went to five, I'd probably start going a little batty. Um, well, let's start off. Let's see how lucky I am. I'm, I'm not so lucky in love some days, but I am. I do like to lean towards luck. So let's go with lucky number seven.
1: Lucky number seven. What is your favorite
0: rock band? That okay. That is a really interesting question because then we get into the whole like, what is a rock band kind of thing. I would say the band that I keep coming back to, decade after decade like I used to like my 20s I had a favorite rock band that was the Flaming Lips you know in my teens I had a favorite rock band that was the Rage Against the Machine but you know I there's a rock band that I listened to as a teenager that I loved as a 20 year old I loved and now as a 35 uh, 36 year old I I still return to to their albums I'm going to have to go with Radiohead
1: okay okay that's defensible that's defensible Mm -hmm. um okay let's see let's see how your luck how your luck
0: persists here. Well, now I'm going to go, now I'm going to try to kill the beast and go ahead and get rid of the unlucky number on the table. Number 13.
1: Number 13. What, what animal not typically eaten would you most reluctantly eat?
0: Most reluctantly? <laughs> like, this is, a, what does that even mean? Because, okay. Let, you, let me break it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, what animal?
1: So we're yes. looking for an animal.
0: Of course, yeah. Not
1: typically eaten. So an animal that people don't normally eat.
0: But they will. Be... Like we're not, you know, because there's, there's a lot of animals that people do not eat. So I'm assuming I don't have to choose one of those. It's like, this is like the, you go to a foreign restaurant and you're like, oh, what is this? And they tell you which meat it is. And you're like, oh no. I would say that this is not typically eaten.
1: I'm looking for an animal here that almost no one eats.
0: Almost? And... <laughs> well, I ha- okay, I have my first answer. And actually refers, it actually kind of goes back to our last episode when I was, you know, uh, because I became aware that there was something called turtle soup when I was a child. And the idea that you would eat, I think I was kind of fascinated when I was a kid, but the older I get, the idea that somebody would eat a turtle is just like, I know, like we all have our favorite, you know, the cuter, the animal, but there's something very barbaric. Like, Like those things, you have to really, really want to... You know, take apart it, a, a a turtle. Like, there's other animals that you can dress and get so much more efficiency out of. Like, to, to get through a turtle's shell to get to what little meat they have, it's just I, I can't you, imagine of the. You or, really have to work to take. Apart a turtle. Yes, exactly. I don't want to get into the gritty details, but uh, folks at home, imagine actually trying to eat a turtle. There's so many. There's so many animals that the the barrier of entry to get to their meat is so much lower. It, it makes sense that we went after them. Let uh, me give you
1: some bad news here, Joel. Yeah. I think turtle turtles are too typically eaten.
0: Oh my goodness. Okay. So,
1: I am I'm not accepting that.
0: <laughs> what animal? Okay, I'll say this one then. Because I have a soft spot. I think uh, I, you know, it was only recently that I came up with this. I always I used to say that my spirit animal was a bear, and which might still be kind of true. I do maybe have some bearish tendencies when it comes to my, you know, or at least I used to, my, my hibernation cycle. Uh, but now I just have, I, every time I see an elephant in, you know, the news and everything, uh, or like, you know, on Reddit, you know, elephant gifts just get me. Every time I learn a fact about elephants, it makes me want to cry. So the idea of eating an elephant or hurting an elephant is just beyond, you know, beyond me. So I, I, I do, do too many people eat elephants?
1: <laughs> I, don't, I don't think so. I've never heard of anyone eating an elephant. It yeah. seems quite barbaric. So.
0: I'd rather eat an airplane or a, a shoe, right? Because <laughs> that's, a, that's a turn of phrase. You have to eat an elephant one bite at a time. It's like, no, I can eat a shoe one bite at a time, but not an elephant.
1: Okay. Oh. So, so there is a scenario in which you would eat an airplane?
0: if it's a choice between an airplane and an elephant
1: okay okay well this is giving me some ideas for future future, <laughs>
0: future okay. episodes all right so i think that's that leaves one more question correct
1: yeah so what's i want i
0: yeah I, I chose two special numbers so i'm going to choose a number that i personally don't consider as special and now that i think about that i i kind of like i have a narrative to like the first like 20 numbers so that's probably not true but I think fifteen is like not that special of a number, so I go ahead and go to fifteen. Let's see. Let's see where where your uh, juices were like being. You're, you're running out of gas in the tank.
1: What's one place you would never want to
0: travel to? That is, that is a very interesting question because I'm not much of a traveler. Period. So I only have like a handful of places that I've actually thought, man, it'd be cool to go there someday. Uh, you know what? Uh, can I can I make it? a a broad one and just say any active volcano ah <laughs> uh, that's a disappointing
1: i've been involved active volcanoes they're pretty cool
0: okay well i'm okay that... i'm gonna take you to an active volcano now okay okay well that's that's that'll be for our travels uh for sure yeah. uh you know there's that trash. they like, supposedly that island made of trash in the was it the atlantic ocean
1: the pacific plastic patch or oh is
0: oh is it the pacific ocean yeah I always I, heard, I, I I thought it was the Atlantic because I thought it came from New York.
1: I I don't I don't know.
0: Can I? I, I yeah, I mean, <laughs> can I say that the 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 Trash Island? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I is it not, a
1: real? Is it an actual island covered in trash or just
0: a like a floating patch of trash? Yeah, I uh, I think it's I think it's a floating patch of trash. Okay,
1: all right. So, I mean, one of the things that we're hoping to do is to go on adventures in the in, in the future, and, and so <laughs> I have some ideas.
0: Does it involve um, me going to a trash island and eating elephants?
1: <laughs> At least eating an airplane. Eating. I don't know that I don't I don't I'm not I'm not, I'm not I couldn't bring myself to to feed you an elephant. Thank you. Um, <laughs> uh, I do want to ask you one more question. It's a follow up to one of the other questions that I asked. Okay. What animal, not typically eaten, would you most satisfyingly eat?
0: Oh, man. That's, that's a hard one. I feel like, I feel like we're going to get, I'm going to get canceled in the comments for this one.
1: Well, it's an objective.
0: Yeah, that's, that's true. I'm trying to think. think
1: I'd love to see you get canceled for something really innocuous, but just strange. Like people are like, yeah, I just don't know how I feel about someone ever using those words in that order.
0: Yes, he would eat that. Oh my goodness! He would enjoy eating that.
1: I mean, I'm pretty pretty pleased with. It's like really hard to, to take apart a turtle. But let's see, let's see. What, what what animal that's not typically eating would you find it most satisfying to eat?
0: You know, that is uh, such a good question because like I feel like we found all the good ones. That's my personal take on it. It's like we do. We found all the good ones. And I feel like there's some low-hanging fruit that you're probably going to dismiss. Like, I feel like enough people eat snake where I can't, like, get away with saying snake. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, that's that's too easy. Yeah, oh, my gosh. Okay, we're talking, like... If I take a turn and we make a billion dollars on this game somehow, and or you know, like just we amass wealth and then I'm just doing things for the decadence and to say that I did them, I think like there's been ta- there's word uh, there's uh, this bird that supposedly is like so tender and so delicious, but to eat it is like to be it is you have to do it covered because it's shameful for God to see you eating it, so like you hide yourself from God. Now I'm not going to say that bird, but. I'm going to say, like, the American version of that bird. And I'm going to say, I think that I would brag about eating a bald eagle.
1: You want to eat a bald eagle?
0: I don't want to eat a bald eagle. But if I'm to sit here and say that there's a, there's a weird thing to eat out there, I feel like that was the first thing that came <laughs> to mind. And I feel like there's something about the symbol, the, the symbol of eating the American bird. So, yeah that I would eat the bald eagle. I would fully embrace my, my heritage as a, a nondescript American. Will, please edit
1: out anything that makes that seem like a remotely acceptable thing to say. I just really <laughs> Man, I have some other questions here that I really want to hear your answers to, but I guess I'll have to save them.
0: <laughs> all right, folks. Well, uh, that was something random from Danny. And as always, I feel very morally compromised after having <laughs> gone through it. So we'll just go ahead and get to the ending of the episode. Thank you all so much, Fortune Seekers, for coming and joining us for the official Megamoth Studio podcast. As always, you can follow us on Instagram at fortune. <laughs> That's a mouthful. We're also Megamoth Studios on TikTok. And we do have Facebook pages under both of those names as well. So just search us on Facebook if that's what you're still using, Boomer. Um, But I think that'll do us for this episode. So all I want to say is catch you later, Fortune Seekers.